welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we listen to a panel discussion about the future of the nuclear deal and negotiations and diplomacy between Tehran and Washington, with a new hardline president in Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, and the Biden administration here in the United States. I joined this panel, which was hosted by Friends of Europe, a prominent think tank in Brussels, Belgium, and I was joined by other experts, Susan Tahmasebi, director at Femina, John Wolfstall, a senior advisor at Global Zero, and Eldar Mamadov, a foreign policy advisor at the European Parliament. Here's that panel discussion, moderated by Jamie Shi, a senior fellow at Friends of Europe. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody, and greetings from Town Hall Europe in the heart of uh, Brussels. Uh, I'm Jamie Shea, Senior Fellow here at Friends of Europe, uh, and I'm delighted to be the moderator for uh, today's uh, debate where we will be asking the question, Quo Vadis Iran, uh, particularly with a new president, uh, and of course, uh, the nuclear file uh, and the possibility of returning to the Iran nuclear deal, uppermost in the minds of both Iranian uh, and Western uh, diplomats. Um, Iran is a country which uh, always seems to be either in the news or or making the news. It's never far away from the front page of our newspapers. Uh, Sometimes uh, this is because of domestic uh, stories. I mentioned the recent uh, elections where we've had uh, large-scale anti-government protests on and off in Iran in the past. What does this mean for the future of the country and its stability? We've had the question about how well uh, Iran is coping or not coping uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But ladies and gentlemen, let's be frank, most often I- Iran is in the news for its external and foreign uh, policies and, and behaviour. Uh, of course, the most immediate issue, which will be our focal point today, is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise called the Iran. Uh, nuclear deal uh, and the question can it be rescued can it be saved in the old form or in a modified uh, form we want to know how important is this nuclear file in terms of the evolution of the west's relations uh, with uh, iran can it be uh, a game uh, changer uh, can it help uh, international non-proliferation efforts but we also of course need to focus on iran's regional behaviour. Another reason why it's often in the news, uh, it's uh, uh, activities, some would say interference in Syria, uh, in Lebanon, in Yemen uh, and Iraq. Um, Also, of course, uh, attacks on shipping in the Gulf, which have been attributed to Iran uh, recently uh, using drones and a long-standing accusation that the Islamic Republic has been behind multiple uh, terrorist attacks over the last few days. Uh, The West relations with Iran, well, let's be frank again, have been a rather bumpy affair ever since the Islamic Revolution back in 1979. Hostility rather than cooperation or even dialogue uh, has characterised the uh, relationship. Um, Henry Kissinger quipped famously once, that Iran was more a cause than it was a uh, country. But is there prospects that in future it will be less of a cause and more uh, of a country? Will it be open for cooperation with the West uh, or will it join 
or increasingly integrate into the awkward squad uh, by coming closer economically to China, militarily to China and Russia. So today we want to focus on the nuclear file, absolutely, but we want also to broaden out the discussion and the conversation to look more broadly at what is happening with Iranian civil society and how much influence it still has, uh, the prospects for the country with a new president, more of the same, or will there be reforms and changes? Are there opportunities to engage, or is it going to be more stormy weather ahead? Well, fortunately, I don't need to answer or any of these uh, questions. And I have four of the very best experts that we could possibly find who are going to precisely do that uh, for us. First of all, I welcome back to a Friends of Europe platform, uh, Nega uh, Motazavi, who is an Iranian-American journalist. She's a Friends of Europe uh, young leader uh, for uh, uh, the Middle East and North Africa. She's really one of our favourites. I mean, every time we want to discuss Iran uh, and the Middle East, we turn to Nega, uh, and we've never put a question to her which she has not answered uh, with insight and brilliance. So, Nega, uh, I see that you're not in your kitchen today. I'm slightly disappointed because I was coming to admire your kitchen. You are obviously in a library or a study, uh, perhaps a more dignified academic background for a very serious topic. Uh, I'm going to turn to Nega to lead us off in just a moment. But we also have uh, Suzanne uh, Tamasebi, uh, who is a leading uh, advocate for women's rights uh, and a direct, the director of FEMINA, a very clever uh, acronym, uh, because it's an organisation which defends women's rights across the MENA region. Uh, Susan, delighted to welcome you uh, today as our second speaker. We're going to be joined uh, by John Wolfstahl. Uh, John uh, is a uh, senior uh, American strategist and thinker. Uh, he's currently the senior advisor at Ground Zero former senior director for arms control and non-proliferation on the National Security Council. When I asked my former boss, Rose Gottemuller, uh, a former deputy secretary general of NATO, who we should get, she said, John is absolutely the key person. Unfortunately, we managed to get him. Uh, and John will give us a sense of how things are progressing or not progressing in terms of resurrecting the Iranian nuclear deal. And finally, uh, we're in Brussels, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are a, a think tank which believes firmly in European uh, political cooperation and integration. So we always want to have uh, an EU Brussels perspective on matters. And of course, the EU is an active player, both on the nuclear file and in relations with Iran. So Elder Mamedov will be uh, the last speaker wrapping up the panel. Uh, he's the political advisor for the Social Democrats uh, on the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament. So, Elder, uh, a very warm welcome and thanks for joining us. So, obviously, panellists, uh, our gratitude that you're here today. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've asked the panel, uh, this is a little bit of a lost call sometimes, but I'm hoping that today we're going to pull it off. I've asked our panellists to keep their opening remarks to a maximum of six minutes. Uh, because then we will have time for you, dear audience, to come in with your questions. Uh, please, uh, as we are doing something that you've all done a million times over the last two years, which is using uh, a Zoom-type platform, uh, please raise your hand. Please don't use the chat uh, to ask a question because it's difficult for me, the moderator, to keep track of all of the chat uh, uh, dialogue. So please raise the hand. Much easier for me to see. Uh, give your name, your organisation, please. Uh, 
uh, when you ask your question. And please keep your questions brief uh, so that we can have as many questions as possible. Usual stuff, right? Uh, and thank you for uh, being uh, ready to comply uh, with that. And when you're, uh, of course, not asking a question, if you could keep yourselves on mute, that tends to help the technology and the comprehension of everybody uh, concerned. So, Nega, uh, I've asked you to give us a scene setter, get us going. So, uh, the impact and the significance of the last elections. More of the same, or could we really expect some surprises going ahead from President Raisi? Uh, what if there are prospects for change? In which direction would that change likely uh, to go? Uh, particularly, I mentioned the Russia-China options. Uh, and uh, your own take on the Iran nuclear deal. I know John will take us into the details later. But do you see that uh, resurrecting this deal is more or less likely uh, after what you've seen of the negotiations, at least up until June so far? So uh, give us the overall picture, uh, and that will warm us up uh, and uh, get us uh, into the details a bit later on. Nega, welcome back, and I pass you the virtual microphone. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks to you and to Friends of Europe for hosting another excellent event, uh, very important and timely, on Iran. And hello to my fellow panelists and friends, Susan, Eldar, and John. It's great to see you all, and thanks for everyone who's tuning in. Um, let me just start by... Um, sort of um, summarizing what happened in the past few years, especially under President Trump's uh, presidency, which basically led to a consolidation of power by the Iranian hardliners um, who started gaining momentum as a result of the campaign of maximum pressures. Obviously, a lot of domestic issues inside Iran, which um, I'm confident Susan is going to explain in, uh, in more details. But um, the Iranian hardliners, and as you also mentioned, Jamie, briefly, with President Trump's um, very tough rhetoric on Iran and um, rhetoric and actions, um, the pulling out of the JCPOA, pulling the United States out of the nuclear deal, imposing very strict economic sanctions on the country, the assassination of top Iranian general by the United States, later top Iranian nuclear scientists by the Israelis, and also, as you mentioned, the military escalations in the Persian Gulf region, some done by Iran, Iran's proxies, and also uh, sort of the proxy war happening between Iran and Israel and escalating all of these, which I'm sure all of you have um, heard more details about in the past few years, led to the hardliners sort of taking um, the upper hand in Tehran, gaining momentum, and also putting an effort into consolidating power, marginalizing the moderates, the pro-diplomacy camp in Tehran, as uh, I'd like to call them, um, and just making things more difficult and complicated when it comes to diplomacy and engagement with the West, which is the focus of our discussion right now. And um, the consolidation sort of started with the Iranian parliament, um, which is now controlled by the hardliners. The hardliners uh, use the Guardian Council to filter out most of the competition, reformists and moderates, um, and gain control of the parliament, regain control of the parliament. And then, obviously, you mentioned the president. It was the turn of presidency. So the tradition in the Islamic Republic in the past four decades has been that each president has stayed for two terms, eight years. So this election in the past June was the turn of presidency. There's a hardline president now. There was, as I've explained it in more detail, 
in the past um, sort of an engineered process when it came to the election. There was a massive disqualification of moderate and reformist rivals. Any top candidate who would be a viable competition to Ebrahim Raisi was basically eliminated from the race um, for this pact to open for uh, the hardline president, Ebrahim Raisi, who uh, won in an election that had the lowest participation uh, in the history of the Islamic Republic. And he also uh, won a low uh, percentage of vote, barely enough to, uh, to become president and also by eliminating the competition. So this is the situation uh, in Iran right now with moderates completely weakened, completely marginalized, the reformists completely weakened and marginalized, and the country also dealing with a lot of domestic crises, ongoing anti-government protests, the population is very angry, the economic situation is fairly weak. And with all that, um, the nuclear deal is basically is still alive, but I call it on life support. And it becomes a very uh, difficult question because in the first uh, six months of President Biden's uh, administration, basically, when he came in uh, January, many of us were hoping that a return to the nuclear deal would be made um, towards the beginning of his administration, but basically it would be an easy process, it would be quick, and I think it could have been done, many experts are, have been saying it, it could have been done, but there needed to be a political capital spent for that here in Washington, because it's also a very polarizing issue in Washington, and sanctions relief for Iran going back to full compliance under the deal. All of those are very uh, uh, complicated and it basically didn't happen in the first six months. And I called that a golden window of opportunity when President Biden was coincided with his administration, coincided with a moderate or pro-diplomacy administration in Tehran, the same team who negotiated the nuclear deal in the Iranian administration were still in power over here most of the same people who negotiated the nuclear deal on the U.S. side are back in the White House or the State Department. And things could have been done uh, faster and easier. Now they've, they've basically hit a roadblock. From now on, I think the path is going to be more complicated, more difficult as far as a return to a nuclear deal with a hardline team as a partner on the other side. And um, as far as Iran, just to finally wrap up your question of Iran's political direction, it's going to take a more hardline political direction. That means moving further away from the West, shifting more towards the East, towards China, towards Russia, a very different outlook on economic relations, on trade, even on security, Iran's regional policy. The hardliners tend to promote a more aggressive regional policy, less of a dialogue, less of diplomacy, and more of uh, force and proxy wars. There have been some talks of uh, engagement with Iran's regional rivals, foes, um, specifically Arab countries of the Persian Gulf. And there may be some hope in that for the uh, Raisi administration, especially because his foreign minister is someone whose expertise uh, Amir Abdullah, his expertise is actually in focus, has been the Arab world. So there may be some uh, surprises there as far as Iran's outreach to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But when it comes to the nuclear uh, deal, when it comes to diplomacy and negotiations beyond the nuclear issue, which is something President Biden um, had been talking about that he's interested, 
between Tehran and Washington, I think the road ahead is just more complicated and more bumpy than it was um, when when it coincided with a moderate team in Tehran. And this president in Iran um, is most likely going to have two terms. So that means the Biden administration will have to be dealing with a hardliner in Tehran for the rest of his one or two term presidencies. And this is an unfortunate recurrence in the in the recent history of U.S.-Iran relations because these windows of opportunity have always been very short and most of the time it's an anti-diplomacy um, team that coincided with someone who wants to uh, amend relations and that's made things um, more difficult and complicated. So I'll stop there. I don't know if I use all of my six minutes. Hopefully I didn't go over, but I'm happy to answer any questions and looking forward to the rest of the panel. Well, Nega, thanks. To be honest with you, I was so interested in what you were saying that I took my eye off the clock. So if you did go over the six minutes, uh, it was time we all spent well. Uh, uh, Jonathan Swift used to say that his purpose was to inform, not to entertain. And you've given us a sobering uh, account, but obviously we have to be realistic. And you've mentioned there are opportunities, but they come rarely. Um, uh, and uh, difficult uh, to recover if you miss them. Uh, a more hardline political direction, uh, particularly with an eight-year term, so likely more stormy weather ahead. Uh, but thank you, uh, Negar, as always, for setting the scene. Uh, let me now turn to Susan. Susan, uh, I'm not an Iran expert, but I often get the impression that Iran is a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, a very hardline regime, which is used to and ready to use repression. But civil society, if, if I'm not wrong, survives and is vibrant and occasionally expresses itself very forcefully, for example, in the demonstrations about the economy or about the, the vaccine. So uh, where do uh, things uh, stand? Uh, how vibrant is civil society? And what kind of influence could it bring to bear, for example, in getting a, a resolution of the nuclear file? Uh, does it have a role there at all? Or, or maybe at least pushing a regime, whether it wants to or not, perhaps in a more open reformist direction. So uh, give us your take. And I know that you're particularly interested in the situation of women and their rights. So tell us uh, how, uh, how it is uh, today uh, in uh, the Islamic Republic. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you to um, friends of Europe and everyone who's joined this, this important event. Yes, of course, you know, I'm a member of civil society and I believe in the power of Iranian civil society. I think Iranian civil society has consistently surprised many um, but nevertheless, the situation in Iran at present is a very difficult situation for civil society and for human rights. We expected that during the, uh, the during the Rouhani administration that the space for civil society would open up. Of course, it didn't. Um, we had competing um, uh, security agencies basically repressing and cracking down on, on civil society during his term. We anticipate that the situation will get worse already. A number of activists have been arrested who um, asked for accountability from the state on its inability and its unwillingness to address the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, three people are in prison, including Mehdi Mahmoudian, who is a leading human rights activist um, for asking for that accountability. So I anticipate in the next four years, the next eight years, that we're going to have more of the same when it comes to civil society, Iranian civil society over the last 12 years has been um, facing systematic repression, really longer than that, but particularly the last 12 years has impacted its ability to be active and vocal and hold the government accountable. 
um, since the 2009 elections. Um, so um, we anticipate more of that. There are many, uh, there are several elements that impact civil society. One is the state repression. Of course, I think we hear about that quite often. It's, con con uh, you know, state repression that doesn't allow civil society to be active. It could uh, arrest civil society activists, human rights activists. The other element is the fact that so Iranian civil society is extremely isolated, like the Iranian state. The Iranian civil society is extremely isolated. It's not connected to international supports, doesn't receive international solidarity. It's never... Hardly ever. I don't want to say never. I think there's a few times, but it's rarely, rarely engaged in um, uh, international discussions about the future of Iran, especially these political discussions that are really critical and we need to have the input of civil society. And then the other element that impacts civil society negatively is the economic situation which in part is due to the sanctions, in great part it's due to the sanctions, but also because of state corruption and um, uh, state mismanagement. So what's happened in the last several years, especially with the COVID pandemic, is, is a lot of the organizations that are working on human rights and accountability have had to reduce the level of the work that they're doing to respond to an economic and health crisis that Iranians are facing and do more charity work rather than higher level human rights work. So. This is, and I anticipate that the next few years are going to be more of the same. Um, we have a serious hardliner also in the judiciary who is going to crack down. He was formerly the minister of intelligence, who's also going to crack down pretty severely on civil society. And we see signs of that. And we also have promises of um, uh, restricting further the internet, access of Iranians to the internet, which is where Iranians have been organizing. So I don't see this as a, um, a, a hopeful period when it comes to civil society. I also um, want to talk about accountability. I think that that's an important issue for you. Civil society is not as engaged on the nuclear issue. It has rarely been engaged on the nuclear issue. I think where the civil society can hold the state accountable is on economic issues and JCPOA and really call the state to come to some sort of agreement with the West just to relieve economic pressures. But nevertheless, as I said, many of the civil society activists are you know, under pressure and they're arrested the minute that they call for accountability. There's several accountability measures that are going on in the US and in the West. One is Hamid. Uh, Nuri, who is one of the uh, people implicated in the 1988 massacres. President Raisi is also one of the main figures that's implicated in the massacres, the killing of prisoner, political prisoners who had prison sentences. They were executed. So um, this is an issue that could come back and haunt the Iranian president in the future in terms of holding him accountable. But I anticipate that there's not going to be much accountability from civil society when it comes to the nuclear issue, except for the um, uh, the uh, economic situation. Those who hold the, held Hassan Rouhani's government accountable on the nuclear issue tended to be hardliners, not so much civil society, but hardline groups affiliated with the current hardline hardline president in power. So I anticipate that they're not going to hold Raisi accountable on any of those issues um, either. Lastly, I want to point out to the fact that, you know, because international politics impact civil society so greatly, there is a fear among civil society groups that Iran 
you know, there might be some sort of agreement between Iran and the West, and then uh, human rights will be neglected. So I think it's important for Europeans who understand Iran a little bit better than the Americans to make sure that human rights continues to be or is center stage um, uh, with respect to its relationship with Iran and to hold Iranians Iranian government accountable on human rights issues. And nevertheless, whether there is an agreement with Iran or there isn't an agreement with Iran, civil society and human rights needs to figure prominently in the work of European governments when it comes to uh, relations with Iran, that they need to pay attention to how to support and strengthen civil society, but also how to support and strengthen human rights in a way that doesn't endanger activists on the ground. I'll stop there and I'll be happy to answer any more questions with respect to civil society and human rights in Iran and its interplay with the JCPOA or otherwise. Uh, Suzanne, th thank you very much. Oh, like Nigar, you gave us a sobering but uh realistic uh, uh, assessment of the situation. Civil society is still there, thank God, but on life support. Uh, not connected uh, to the West is that our fault in terms of not being more active. But you raised the question, which is always there, what kind of Western help helps uh, uh, and is not counterproductive in making the situation worse for civil society activists. You also indicated that the EU could have a, a niche role there uh, in terms of uh, keeping alive the the flame of human rights, uh, not being willing to sacrifice them for any sort of geopolitical deal. Uh, God forbid that that were uh, the uh, uh, case. Uh, but certainly, yes, uh, what uh, actions could be helpful? Um, that's something I'm sure that somebody's going to ask you a question about uh, when we get to the discussion. Suzanne, Suzanne thank you. Uh, John Wolstow is, is next. I've introduced him already. And um, with John, of course, we now can uh, dive down into the uh, specifics of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, I asked uh, John a few questions uh, uh, already, uh, uh, and I asked him in particular to give us a sense of whether the negotiations are alive or dead. They, they haven't resumed since June. Does that mean that they're really blocked, or uh, are both sides just taking a breather before coming back uh, to cut the final uh, agreement? Uh, in the meantime, of course, Iran continues to enrich uh, and to develop its uh, nuclear infrastructure. Has it sort of reached a dangerous new level where it might sort of not want to come back to the deal because it might feel that it has too much to give up uh, uh, in terms of its uh, nuclear capabilities? Does, does Iran or the U United States, the West, need a deal uh, uh, most? I asked John also, sorry, John, for so many questions, uh, but uh, China and Russia were at least part of the agreement last Time round, even if obviously the US did most of the heavy lifting with and the EU with the negotiations, are they being equally helpful this time round? Or given the more uh, uh, tense uh, uh, relationship with Russia and China and the West, have they decided this time to take the Iranian uh, side? And I asked you too, because of course we are in Brussels, John. Uh, how, uh, from a US point of view, how useful can the EU be as a mediator or what, what kind of role could it play which would help the Biden administration get over the line? John, delighted to see you. Too many questions, uh, but uh, we're looking forward to what you can enlighten us on. I pass the virtual microphone to you, sir. Uh, you're very kind, and thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I consider myself a friend of Europe, so I'm happy to be participating in the Friend of Europe uh, Forum. Um, i also happy to see a, a number of friends, and especially since I know if I get something wrong, Barbara Slavin will uh, correct <laughs> the record, uh, since she's as deep an expert, if not more so, than I on, on many of the matters that we're going to discuss. 
Um, this has been a sobering discussion so far, uh, and so let me try to hit you with a little bit of good news before I sober you up, which is that um, we have to remind ourselves Iran does not have a nuclear weapon. Iran is not on the verge of having a nuclear weapon, and there's no indication that Iran has any intention to build a nuclear weapon. And so as we digest these issues, I think it's really important to keep in context uh, that we're not necessarily on the edge of a cliff and about to fall off. However, um, what Iran is doing and the lack of success in returning to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, is troubling. Uh, Iran is continuing to advance its ability to enrich uranium, uh, which it does not need for civilian purposes, and which can be very useful should it ever decide it wants to build nuclear weapons. It's continuing to advance its knowledge base on advanced centrifuges, which can enrich uranium more quickly and more efficiently, which makes it harder to put the uh, verification uh, scheme back in place um, should the United States and Iran and other members of the JCPOA get back to an agreement. Um, and Iran is still refusing to clear up very serious and very real questions about its past nuclear activities, specifically related to when it had a weapons program prior to 2003. Um, at the same time, Iran is pushing the envelope on what it is uh, doing with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And this is something that the United States and the European Union and all states, I think, have an incentive in pushing back against. Um, we have seen behavior that should be considered completely unacceptable by Iran towards international inspectors. Harassment of female inspectors, damaging uh, IAEA monitoring equipment. These are not things that in and of themselves should precipitate a crisis, but they're a sign that Iran is engaging in behavior uh, just as they are on other issues which we should find troublesome uh, as uh, countries committed to the rule of law and international peace. Now, that being said, um, I think there are, there's plenty of blame to go around in terms of the current situation. Uh, clearly, I would say uh, primary blame goes to Iran for having pursued nuclear weapons prior to 2003. Um, but having committed to the JCPOA in 2015, obviously the United States under President Trump deserves a tremendous amount of blame for his withdrawal from a working agreement which provided a basis for improving relations uh, with Iran and peace and stability for a significant period of time. But we are where we are, and where we are is really quite concerning. Uh, the window of opportunity, I think, between President Biden and a more uh, engaged, uh, uh, I hesitate to say moderate, but a more engaged administration in Iran has closed. Um, that often happens, and you have to deal with the governments that uh, you have to deal with, uh, and there's an argument to be made that if you can close a deal with a conservative government, then perhaps that's more sustainable over the long period of time. Uh, but the Arisi administration is clearly still getting up and running. They have a lot of challenges, just as the United States has a lot of challenges. And I don't think the, the failure to get back into the JCPOA so far is a result of a lack of effort by the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration made it clear we were prepared to go back in. We wanted to go back in. What the Iranians were requesting was something the United States had said in terms of the complete lifting of all sanctions up front is something that we were not in a position to do legally, nor was it something we thought was advisable to do in the context of the agreement. Uh, and Iran pushed uh, what it thought was a strong hand. And now uh, we're in a situation where we don't have the agreement in force uh, and the benefits of the agreement are rapidly eroding. Um, I do think the Biden administration would like to get back into uh, the JCPOA with Iran. 
And I do think the Biden administration would like to use that to expand the terms of the agreement to lengthen it, as President Biden has said, and strengthen it. It is not clear that Iran has any interest in doing that, however. And um, to get to the question from the moderator, you know, who has a stronger incentive to get back into the agreement? I would argue that that's, that's not the way I would want to look at it. It, it. The agreement becomes less valuable to the United States and to the non-Iranian members as time goes on, because the constraints in the agreement, while some of them never expire, uh, including Iran's prohibition on ever pursuing nuclear weapons, the limits on enrichment, the ability of Iran to break out of uh, a non-nuclear situation, erode over time. Uh, and this was, of course, the main uh, criticism from the American domestic audience and from Israel, um, that, well, as we get closer to year 15 in the agreement, it becomes less relevant. The argument was, of course, the United States would be in a stronger position with regards to Iran in uh, 2030 than it was in 2015. Um, I guess uh, we can debate whether or not that's true, given uh, domestic situation in the United States. But I would argue that... Um, I think both the Iranians and the United States have sort of overplayed their hand and need to come back to some base principles, which is neither side benefits nor do the other JCPOA member benefit if Iran is much closer to a nuclear weapon than a year. That is an unstable situation which provides temptations for both Iran, the United States, and I would argue other countries in the region to take action which um, uh, affect the status quo unilaterally. Um, Iran clearly would benefit economically. I wouldn't say all elements of Iranian society, because clearly some elements benefit, as I learned from Barbara, uh, more than others from the sanctions regime. Mm. Um, but the Iranian uh, country would benefit um, from the lifting of sanctions. And I think the United States would be able to pursue what it would like to do in terms of reorienting its foreign policy more towards China over time if it were able to get a stable nuclear agreement. But agreements are hard. Uh, and there is a lack of trust all around. Uh, the United States doesn't trust the new administration in Iran for good reason. The Iranian administration doesn't trust the United States for good reason. And I think this gets to the last question, which is what role can the European Union and European states play? And I actually think this is critical, especially in the wake of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and in the wake of the uh, submarine deal with Australia, which France has uh, clearly expressed uh, tremendous frustration and, and even anger with. Um, European voices matter to President Biden. He believes in alliance relationships. If Europe believes that it is in its interest for Iran to be back in the JCPOA and the United States to be back in the JCPOA, then that needs to be communicated clearly and the EU foreign policy effort and the individual European countries need to coordinate and effectively communicate that message, just as they must communicate that to Iran, that their future economic relationship with Europe uh, and the European Union depends on them fully committing to their non-nuclear future. The final word here, and I'll quote somebody who's not on the, on the call, uh, former boss of mine, George Perkovich. Um, said many years ago when we were actually back, I think, in 2006, 2007, and Barbara, he probably stole this from you as well, which is this whole dynamic of negotiating with uh, Iran and the United States is all about who wins Europe. Whose side is Europe going to be on? Is it going to be on the side of the United States and the rule of law, or is it going to be on the side of engagement with Iran and economic interests? And I would argue that that remains true today. Um, while Russia and China are important, if Europe believes that Iran it should be committed to a non-nuclear future and works in the United States, then I think the prospects for a deal go up. 
And I think if they commit more in, 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 uh, intricately with Iran uh, and decide that, well, the United States can't be trusted and we're just going to go the way of our economic self-interest uh, in terms of dealing with Iran on, on um, fossil fuels and other issues, uh, then I think the prospects for a deal go down. And that puts a lot of pressure on you guys. Um, but we're looking for all the help we can get here in Washington, and we hope we can get some from our European allies. So that, with that, I'll turn things back over to the moderator. Uh, uh, John, thanks very much. Thank you for taking us through a very complex subject uh, briefly and very clearly. Uh, thank you also for delivering a, an interesting, strong uh, political message to, to Europeans uh, at the end. I'm sure that Elder is going to pick up on that uh, when he comes in. Uh, greetings to Barbara, who was mentioned on several occasions. And welcome, Barbara, if you want to intervene in the discussion in just a, a few moments. Uh, for my question, part, John, not to answer now, but two sort of things struck me about what you said. Number one is OK, uh, but now that the negotiations have been frozen for several months. How do we get them restarted? And secondly, as you said, the JCPO has a POA has a sell-by date because circumstances change, interests change as the years go by. At what stage, if we can't go back to the deal or it doesn't make sense to go back to the deal, do we sort of wipe it out and say, hey, we want to deal with Iran, but it now has to be a, a, a JCPO POA Mark II, based on the new sort of technical and political uh, realities. Uh, um, and how do we get the Iranians to do that? Anyway, that, those are just two thoughts that occurred to me, John. Maybe you could pick them up as a kind of question from the moderator uh, when you come in. Uh, Barbara, I see you put your hand up. Thank you for responding to the challenge. Uh, but first, uh, let's listen to Elder, Elder Mamedov from the uh, perspective of the European Parliament. Uh, Elder, John issued a sort of challenge to the Europeans. How do you see the European role? Uh, are we going to sort of go on one side of the fence uh, and not the uh, uh, other? The EU has sort of acted as the chair uh, in the past successfully uh, to steer the negotiations through. Can Europe, European diplomacy sort of pull off the magic trick uh, a second time? Uh, let's have your perspectives and a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to speak uh, at this event. Uh, uh, at the outset, I want to just uh, make it clear that I speak on my own behalf, uh, in my private capacity, not necessarily reflecting the position of my political group or the European Parliament. So I'll do my best. Um, so I'll pick up where uh, John, the previous speaker, left, and that is about the European uh, position and perspective. So indeed, uh, as uh, he rightly noted, the EU was always committed uh, to the uh, JCPOA. And for the EU, it was not a question of choosing sides between Iran and the United States. Uh, it was the choose, to choose a side uh, of international law, of effective multilateralism, of non-proliferation, and um, achieving the goal of uh, non-nuclear Iran while uh, avoiding a very dangerous and uh, unpredictable military escalation. So uh, what happened uh, um, in 2018 uh, with the Trump administration, everybody knows that um, European Union in that situation, both collectively and on the level of E3, uh, UK, France and Germany, the signatures of nuclear deal, was adamant that uh, JCPOA has to survive uh, and uh, uh, made a lot of political statements uh, statements to that effect. Uh, the problem, however, was uh, as seen uh, from the Iranian side is that those statements were not uh, backed up uh, by any 
serious delivery on the European side of the economic dividends that uh, Iran secured and expected uh, as one it was entitled to as part of the deal, uh, which uh, I have to remind uh, Iran stick to for full 14 months after Trump administration withdrew from the deal. So that um, uh, put the EU in a difficult position uh, vis-a-vis Tehran. It also did not help that occasionally it looked like uh, the E3, uh, not the European Union um, collectively, but the E3, uh, looked like, uh, um, let's say, uh, too eager to please uh, the Trump administration by uh, pointing to um, Iran's regional activities, which we all agree are problematic, especially Syria and Yemen and other places. But the problem, uh, at least from Tehran's perspective, was always to single out Iran as a uniquely malign and destabilizing player in the region, whereas it's clear that uh, other players, uh, such as Saudi Arabia, for example, or United Arab Emirates, uh, in their uh, war in Yemen, for example, are also far from blameless. So um, this perception of a lack of uh, European strategic autonomy, uh, if you want, uh, something that we talk about a lot these days in Brussels, uh, also the consequence of uh, uh, the French-Australian um, uh, UK-US crisis. So this lack of strategic autonomy was, uh, was something that was uh, um, perceived as a weakness of the European Union. And... Um, also diminished its leverage in convincing Iran to uh, stick to the deal. So uh, where we go from now, we see that the EU is still very active in trying to bridge the differences uh, between US and Iran. Uh, Fortunately, the things do not go very smoothly because uh, just as we speak uh, in UN General Assembly, uh, Iranian foreign minister is there, Amir Abdullahian, the foreign ministers of some European countries, uh, then uh, the political director of the ES, Enrique Mora, who is very actively engaged in trying to um, uh, meet by uh, at least some informal conversations between P4, the remaining parts of the JCPOA, and Iran, uh, without yet participation of the US. Uh, but it seems that uh, this did not work out and there won't be such a meeting uh, uh, in New York. Uh, but at the same time, we see that Abdullahian uh, has uh, bilateral meetings with the French and British foreign ministers. So the hope is still there that um, even though this is a missed opportunity in New York, that uh, some other opportunities will be uh, presented and seized upon. Because essentially, from the European perspective, uh, there is still today, there is still no convincing alternative uh, uh, to the JCPOA. Now, um, two words uh, I was asked uh, on EU-Iran relations uh, beyond JCPOA, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the way things look like with the new administration, Tehran, uh, uh, it's not very promising. I remember in April 2016, um, when then High Representative Federica Mogherini and Jawad Zarif uh, signed a joint um, communication. Uh, It outlined uh, a lot of areas of potential constructive engagement uh, between EU and Iran. And at that time, it was believed that JCPOA would serve 
as a, a foundation, but not as a ceiling for EU-Iran relations. So with the current administration in Tehran, I'm afraid that it's rather the other way around, that uh, if the uh, JCPA is successful, it's rather going to be a ceiling rather than a foundation for a new kind of uh, more constructive relationship between the EU and Iran. That said, however, there are still some areas where engagement will be necessary. One of them is, uh, of course, Afghanistan. Uh, the European Commission singled out Iran as one of the countries uh, in need of uh, most assistance in coping with the, uh, with the situation. So uh, hopefully that will provide some channel of constructive engagement between EU and Iran, which uh, hopefully will also spread to other areas. So I will stop here and we'll be happy to answer the questions. Elder, again, thanks for being informative, uh, for being brief, and for kindly uh, uh, answering the questions that I posed uh, to you. Uh, uh, it's always great not to be ignored when you're a moderator. Uh, we've got three hands that have gone up. I mentioned already uh, Barbara Slavin, so Barbara first, then Paul Taylor, uh, my uh, uh, dear uh, uh, colleague as senior fellow here, uh, and then we've got uh, Natalia uh, Posirev. So what I'm going to do is bring in the three uh, questions. Uh, please, short. Uh, if it's to a particular person, please indicate. Uh, after those uh, three, I'll ask the speakers quickly to pick up, you know, not exhaustively answer the question, every question, but just pick up what they're interested in from their own perspective. If we go fast, uh, we should have time before we close for a second round. So, Barbara, uh, the virtual microphone is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, John, for such generous remarks. Uh, very kind, and it's nice to see some familiar faces. Jamie, I remember your voice uh, from uh, NATO, many NATO briefings after 9-11. After so very nice to hear you again. Just, just a couple of points. I think, that, um, I think that this administration in Iran will come back to the talks in Vienna. They will play games this week in New York, perhaps, but uh, a lot of pressure is being put on them, uh, not just by Europeans, but also by the Russians uh, and to some extent the Chinese. And Iran needs sanctions relief if Raisi, who is incredibly unpopular, is going to be able to deliver anything uh, to, to the people there in terms of economic benefits. So I'm a little less inclined to doom and gloom. I think there'll be a lot of foreplay and hemming and hawing, but they will get, get back to it. The other thing... I'm hearing is that there may be a revival of talks about Afghanistan, the so-called six plus two, the neighbors of Afghanistan uh, and Russia and the U.S., which means another potential um, format for U.S.-Iran engagement, uh, uh, multilateral, but uh, an old format that was used, frankly, uh, back in the 90s as a way to break the ice between the U.S. and Iran. So I think the situation in Afghanistan, particularly the refugees and so on, is acute enough uh, that Iran sees, uh, sees a need to be part of an international consensus on this issue and not to be isolated as the Shia power uh, that gets all of these refugees dumped on it. Um, internally, I agree with Susan. I think it's really bleak. Um, but I'd be interested in the, the views of the speakers on uh, whether we are perhaps being too doom and gloomy about return to JCPOA and whether there are some uh, prospects for work with Iran uh, on, on Afghanistan that could be mutually beneficial and beneficial to Europe, which is also going to face another uh, bunch of refugees. So thank you very much. And 
over to the uh, my old partner in crime, Paul Taylor. Uh, God, Barbara, you you know we know you, and you know all of us. It's it's great to re-engage. Uh, yes, uh, Paul knows quite a thing or two about Iran, as I'm sure he's going to demonstrate as he makes his comment and poses his question. Paul, thank you, Jamie. Thanks to the speakers for uh, very good briefings and uh, greetings to my former uh, journalistic partner in crime, uh, Barbara, uh, an old friend from Tehran and other de uh, desperate places in the Middle East. Um, Actually, I, I really just have a fairly short question, and I can I think I can uh, address it specifically uh, to John Wolfstall. And it is, does the Biden administration have a free hand to ease sanctions uh, in return for uh, a revival of the JPCOA? What uh, constraints uh, does it have to take into account? Because, you know, we talk a lot about the, the hardliners and the moderates in Tehran, but you know, seen from the outside perspectives, the, the battle between the hardliners and the moderates uh, in D.C. Uh, could do with a little bit of uh, illumination as well. Thank you. OK, Paul, a, a, a pointed question uh, to John. Uh, and then before I bring in the speakers again, we've got uh, Natalia as uh, uh, the last in this round. So, Natalia, uh, the virtual microphone is coming your way now. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you really for... Um, this uh, interesting debate, uh, it's not a question, it's just more like a, um, you know, a reaction to what was uh, presented, is that we can measure now the damage done um, uh, due to the collapse of the GCPOA, because if there was once upon a time uh, a little bit of trust, there's no more trust. Uh, anymore uh, amongst the, um, the negotiators, I'm afraid, and, and both sides. So um, I think uh, that the, the level of threat is increased because we have now the ambiguity, you know, if Iran would use a ballistic missile, even armed with a conventional uh, warhead, that um, now... Uh, the players in the area could question if it's a conventional or nuclear armed um, uh, weapon. So for me, the level of threat has increased and it's a sad, um, I would say, um, uh, consultation. And um, I hope we can get out from this deadlock and from, uh, I think we need to get out from ambiguity, uh, ambiguity concerning the threat, level of threat that is uh, um, present in the area. And um, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the way Israelis are, are considering the situation on their side as well. Thank you anyway. Uh, many thanks indeed, Natalia. So, uh, John, I'll go to you first, if I may, for the round of answers, because clearly you, you got from both from Barbara and from Paul some issues uh, picking up on uh, the JCPOA, uh, maybe not so much doom and gloom, things may be going on behind the scenes. Uh, Paul's question about American domestic politics. So over to you first. Uh, maybe Nega next to pick up this idea, could we sort of talk to Iran about Afghanistan and humanitarian issues and at least start a dialogue there? And I'll bring in the other speakers also to comment. John, please. Sure. Well, um, look, Barbara is often right, and I hope she is on this case, and I think the, the way she's laid out the chess pieces makes sense to me, that Raisi is unpopular and, and does need to deliver the same way that uh, the previous administration wanted to deliver because it helped their domestic political 
um, uh, fortunes. Um, I wouldn't say that the Biden administration has a completely free hand, and I think that gets back to the reason that we aren't back in the JCPOA right now. You can't overstate how hard the Trump administration worked to poison the well and make it difficult for the Biden administration to actually get back to the JCPOA. But we're also dealing with um, uh, legal constraints here in the United States under the Iran Nuclear Review Act, which says that if the United States lifts sanctions, and it needs to certify that Iran is in compliance with the terms of the JCPOA, I believe within 30 days. And so the United States can't simply lift the sanctions and say, okay, Iran, you do what you need to do to get back into compliance, or else it triggers provisions which allows the Congress to vote to reimpose sanctions that the president can't easily waive. Mm. And so Iran and the United States have to go to this dance together. Uh, and where we got into trouble with the JCPOA uh, negotiations over the first part of this year was Iran say, well, you pulled out, you have to go first. And we said, well, we can't go first because we have laws and we actually have to follow them. And so we have to do this together. And Iran said, well, no, we got an election coming up. We're not doing that. So um, it is possible. And I hope that, uh, that Barbara is correct that, you know, I Iran will hem and haw and come back to the table. But I think now that we've shown that, look, there are some constraints here, but we are serious that that will restart the, the, the process. Um, Jamie, I just want to very, very briefly touch on this question of JCPO, JCPOA 2.0. And I think reasonable people here, Eldar, can, can agree to disagree. We don't know what the Iranians uh, may want to talk about if we get back to the JCPOA. We do know what the United States and our allies would like to talk about, which include not just capping the Iranian nuclear potential, but also other activities, including in Iran and Iraq and Yemen and Syria, uh, and behavior towards Israel and proxies and missiles. Those are all serious issues. I don't think, and I think it's been proven, that we don't want to let those issues prevent us from putting the JCPOA back in place. But we have a lot of things to talk about. If we get the JCPOA in place, that provides a basis for having those discussions and makes it a little bit easier. Mm. If we don't, then I think it makes all those issues a little bit harder. And that's something that we all, I think, need to just keep in mind. Uh, John, thank you. Thanks for answering uh, uh, very succinctly those two questions. Uh, Nega, anything uh, you picked up from the debate that anybody said that you want to respond to, uh, particularly this suggestion that uh, maybe in a humanitarian area, uh, maybe, you know, the fact that the Taliban are now back in control in Kabul and how Iran may be sensing uh, any sort of uh, problems in the region resulting from that. Uh, it, it, are there sort of areas where you could have uh, a sort of dialogue uh, that would at least uh, open up the channels of communication? Or do you think that uh, the situation is as dire as many people have been saying? Sure, Jamie. Let me just quickly respond also to Paul because he very correctly pointed at this um, political rift, basically, here in Washington. It's true, the Democrats are back in the White House and they have uh, good power in the Congress. But as I mentioned, there was a political capital that needed to be spent for a return to the JCPO. And that's something that President Biden wasn't prepared to do at the first um, few months of his administration. There were even detailed reports of more hawkish Democrats like Senator Bob Menendez uh, and a few others who were important uh, hurdles, basically, to negotiations, to starting negotiations with Iran and also return to the JCPOA. But going to the Afghanistan issue, I agree with Eldar, um, Barbara also, great to see you, um, that Afghanistan can be 
an icebreaker, at least uh, with the involvement of Europe. It's a very serious issue for Iran. Iran is the second largest host of Afghan refugees after Pakistan. It has a large border with the country. Now with the chaos in Afghanistan, the Relief International was reporting that 5,000 refugees are crossing into Iran by the day from Afghanistan. There have been millions of Afghan refugees in the country. The economic situation is pretty grim. And uh, it's going to be difficult for the country to host even a larger number of refugees after the U.S. withdrawal. So, And it's in direct interest of Europe, of the European Union, because if these refugees are not resettled in neighboring countries, obviously they're going to um, go towards Europe. So um, I think both from a financial perspective, from a security perspective, and also obviously above all a humanitarian um, perspective, this issue of Afghanistan um, is something that can be an icebreaker for Iran and Europe and potentially to bring Washington into the picture. And it's also an issue um, that Iranian moderates and hardliners or both the pro and anti-West camp in Tehran have an interest in because uh, it's it's something that's basically happening on the ground and they have to deal with, especially not that the hardliners have all the power in Tehran. So there's some hope there. Again, as I said, there may be some hope in the regional issues, but I hate to be the pessimist. I just don't see, unless there's a major shifting of gears, either by the Biden administration or something extraordinary happening in Tehran, I just don't see the JCPOA moving any much further than it did um, in the first six months of President Biden's administration. Uh, Negar, thanks very much. Uh, the, the clock is rapidly reaching the end of our hour, but of course I want to give uh, both uh, Suzanne and Elda a chance to pick up on anything that was said with some closing thoughts. Uh, Suzanne, I know that the what was said on the humanitarian front will probably resonate with you. So how do you interpret the prospects there? Yeah, so, yeah, thank you very much. And thanks, Barbara, for the uh, shout out on the human rights situation. Yes, the situation looks bleak, but I don't think that people should just write it off because it looks bleak. I mean, I think it's our job to sort of warn about the negative possibilities, but also the positive possibilities. I think that, you know, the part of the problem is that no one has any leverage on Iran on human rights issues. So um, it's important to sort of in these negotiations to try to get some sort of leverage um, uh, to sort of ho to hold Iran accountable on human rights issues. Iranians and including civil society do want some sort of economic relief, some sort of sanctions relief. So even if the if Europe or the U.S. can't come to terms with the Iranian government, they should think about um, uh, economic relief, at least on the humanitarian front for civil society in terms of negotiations with Afghanistan or involved, you know, the sort of engagement with Iran on Afghanistan and I would say on other fronts as well, that, that we need to think seriously about including civil society as part of those negotiations and part of those cooperations. I think that civil society has largely been written off by the international community. And even when, you know, and I, I appreciate the fact that we're included in this discussion, but I think even when we're included in this discussion, Predominantly, people are very much focused on the politics. But as we see in Afghanistan, the politics may end up being some sort of really crazy um, uh, result. And who's left to pick up the pieces is actually civil society. So it means that we have to take the yep. role of civil society yep. seriously. 
and and ensure that civil society is strengthened. So I just I just really want to stress that. And lastly, I just want to say that all of this lineup of the hardliners is intended for the secession of the supreme leader. So this could possibly be a turning point where civil society can come in and play a role if if there is an issue of secession. That's why it's absolutely critical that civil society is not isolated, that it's strengthened. Message, Suzanne, message message received loud and clear. I I apologise for just breaking in there, but uh, we've got one minute to go and Elder, of course, uh, deserves to have his final word. Elder, please. Thank you. I just want to uh, pick very quickly on what uh, John said concerning uh, ongoing um, uh, or, let's say, uh, forthcoming negotiations on proxies and missiles and other elements of uh, problematic Iranian behavior or policies uh, in the region uh, as a next step after the JCPOA, if it's restored. I just want to uh, make uh, clear that uh, it could improve uh, somewhat atmospherics and uh, create better conditions for talks. But those talks on missiles, proxies, etc., they should never be conceived uh, by the Western side as a way of extracting unilateral concessions from Iran, because Iran sees those as essential elements of its defense posture. So the way forward would be regional talks, uh, which would involve all the regional players and put all the issues on the table, not only Iranian missiles, but also, let's say, Western arms sales uh, to countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE, and uh, uh, discuss a sort of regional security arrangement. That would be the way for the future. The U.S. and the EU should definitely support that. Thanks, Elder. That's, again, a very, very clear message. Uh, All four speakers, you've been absolutely fantastic. Wish we had more time. Thank you very much. Audience, you're always fantastic, particularly those of you who intervene and ask uh, those great questions. So thank you uh, to them uh, today. Um, I usually like to give long summings up, but uh, the clock has uh, defeated me on this occasion. Just to say that clearly uh, no great prospects for change, stormy weather ahead, more of the same. Uh, But uh, the West, of course, has got to help civil society stand up for human rights, help civil society uh, in a constructive way uh, to hold the government to account, perhaps more on the economic situation than on the nuclear deal. On the nuclear deal, uh, also difficult given where we are, legal, technical constraints uh, as well. But let's not indulge too much in doom and gloom. Uh, We've heard that uh, both sides have an interest in getting back to the table, and both sides means Iran as well. We just need to find a way through the woods. If the JCPO can be saved, it could open the door to a broader dialogue on many uh, other uh, issues. In the meantime, uh, diplomats have to look for opportunities where and when they arise. The regional situation, uh, a regional comprehensive dialogue, embracing all of the actors, dealing with uh, uh, the new situation in Afghanistan, humanitarian situation, difficult inside Iran and in the region. There may be some areas for bridge building and construction uh, uh, there. So let's batten down the hatches, uh, but let's hope also uh, for some good news ahead. Uh, So again, uh, on behalf of Friends of Europe, goodbye from Town Hall Europe. Look forward to seeing you at the next debate. Uh, And uh, in the meantime, take good care uh, and stay on Zoom, uh, waiting for that moment when we can welcome you all back here uh, in these wonderful surroundings uh, on a sunny day in Brussels. Bye. That was a panel discussion about the future of the nuclear deal and diplomacy between Tehran and Washington. The panel was hosted by Friends of Europe, a prominent European think tank based in Belgium.
And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. With a small monthly donation, you can help us continue our work and be independent. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.